You're listening to Brave New Words. Uh, I'm your host, Ed Fortune, and I'm here with... Your co-host, Cy Lloyd. And your other co-host, Del. Uh, and we're being managed by the lovely producer, Al. Hello. Hey, Hello producer, producer Al. Brave New Words is also a column in Starburst <laughs> magazine, uh, and you can read that every month in Starburst magazine. Uh, it's been going since 1977, so if you're news agent doesn't have it then what is your news agent doing um you can also listen to us on fab radio international.com and yes it does have to be said that way so <laughs> what are we going to be talking about on the show is it going to be books it's going to be books um or books, books. <laughs> i'm sorry it's addictive um where the book which i'm going to be talking about is the inheritance by Two writers, Robin Hobb and Megan Lindholm. More on that later. This is Fab Radio International. So, Robin Hobb. We know Robin Hobb. She does those marvellous fantasy novels with with main characters who tend to be who tend to be miserable and complain about themselves all the time. I thought you were just going to say she does those wonderful books with main characters. Her various main characters, because uh, they tend to be first person perspective stuff. They are, yeah, first person uh, perspective. Uh, Life Ship Trader stuff and the Assassin's uh, series. Yeah, the Farseer uh, books. The Farseer books. Um, oh my goodness. They, 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 basically, they, they have tend to have their own kind of. They're, they're, they're confidence quite, issues. They do. They're, they're, um, all the, the, the narrators are uh, very angsty. Um, the, the the prose is quite lengthy. It's quite involved. Um, so kind of m- like mid to late nineties angsty uh, uh, to a certain degree. Oh. I mean, given that's when they came out. You've, then, s- you've sold this to me oh, very well. Well, I mean, I, I I've talked about well, and Dad's talked about Robin Hobb books on uh, the the previous show, the Bookworm, um, quite often because I, I love her, um, and so does Ed, but. Um, this other writer, Megan Lindholm, is also the same woman uh, as Robin Hobb. Oh. Um, what it is when she's writing the particular world with Fitz and the Fool and the Live Shit Traders, she's Robin Hobb, and when she's writing everything else, she's Megan Lindholm. Um, there are cynical feminist book publishing reasons as to why she might well, have a different name. Talk about the James mm-hmm. Tetrio Awards later in the show. Okay, we'll do we'll, that. We'll later. talk about all things about Tetrio. Uh, we'll yeah. Am I going to get angry? So let's yes. skirt so okay. away from that for the moment. And let's talk about <laughs> there is not just that reason, but there is also um, there's branding reasons because Robin Hobb writes books about that world, but mm. there's also stylistic reasons because Megan, Megan Lindholm is more concise than Robin Hobb. Mm. Doesn't always write first person. Okay. Uh, she writes. Um, she, she writes about a lot of different issues. She's quite flexible as Megan Lindholm. She, she, she'll write on themes. She'll write serious issues. She'll write light comedy. She'll write kind of um, almost... I mean, there's, there's one or two stories in here which are almost kind of uh, sort of chiclet-type things mm-hmm. with, with a fantasy bent. Yeah. But um, So she's very flexible, and she, she sort of flexes her... Her, her, her writing muscles. Lot it's, as it's branding Lindholm. yourself is a clever way of helping people know what to expect. Yeah. From I think what so. Yeah. I mean, Megan like, Lindholm is actually an older brand than Robin Hood. Mm. Like, like Ian one. Banks and Ian M. Banks. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that sort of thing. I'm and just... I kind of a slightly more crass version, but um, like Katie Price versus Jordan. If you've got an interview with Katie Price or you've got an interview with Jordan, you know what sort of interview you're about to get before the questions have even started. They're both going to be terrible. But yes, <laughs> um... I've just done that thing where I've I've picked up the book and my brain has immediately gone, "That's a Jackie Morris cover." I recognise that as Jackie Morris, the illustrator on the front. Mm. She'd never book, uh, judge a book by its cover, obviously. Um, but well, everybody except that time when you do, that yeah. time you do, and to be honest, if it's going to be illustrated by Jackie Morris, she will. She's such in demand. She's such a good illustrator that she always, always kind of is very selective, mm. and she tends to always illustrate Robin Hobb regardless. <laughs> she's such a fan. Um, I just. So why are the two cats on the cover? Um, there that are, strikes me as a very Jackie Morris. There film. are two cats on the cover. Um, let me think. At least one of the cats is. Um, uh, from the Robin Hobb story, Cat Meat, in here. Oh no! Um, which uh, <laughs> it's it, it's very good. If you if you're a cat lover, you will enjoy this. One of the things that Robin Hobb does is, is animals very well, and animals voices. Um, Sorry, not like that. <laughs> that's a terrible way to put that sentence. <laughs> Sorry, that's my bad. Um, she writes the voices of animals very well. Um, we were discussing the film Frozen before, and there's a bit where the guy t- the guy does the voice of his reindeer, and yeah. a, a little bit like that. The, the way that Robert in Robin Hobb's books, there is a certain kind of magic called the wit, where people can communicate with animals, and you read the animals' voices, and it very much reminds me of the way me and the missus talk to the dogs um, and do the dog's voice. I get really sense that. Um, because the characters talk to, to animals yeah. and animals don't live as long as humans yes because yeah. that's, that's a thing and she deals with that and I always think when I think of because when I always think of the wit I don't think of Night Eyes who is, a, who is the wolf character the wolf, no. I think of Nosy Nosy the dog yeah no, no, who is gorgeous he, he's very much kind of like hello <laughs> very much kind of like a, in, yeah. uh, the, the, way, the, the way you do I love you the, yeah, the, you do they yeah. don't you the way she does the way Robin Hood mm. writes animals and the mm. way she does the, boy, the, the, the voice for yeah. The, the the animal I can always with, with nausea I was like I just want to give you a sausage and a cuddle Aww. and tell you it's going to be okay mm. it's a lie but I'm going to tell you it's going to be okay because that's what you need to hear mm. right now like my, my rabbit's voice is do what I want <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. um the cat in Cat's Meat is is brilliant. and We don't so much hear the cat's voice so much because none of the main characters in Cat's Meat are witted. Um, however, in, in, in Hobbes' sort of legend, uh, cats can actually talk to anybody, whether they're witted or not, and they will vaguely understand them. Mm-hmm. Um, is that because cats are slightly more magic? They're, they're slightly more magic, slightly uh, more human in some ways as yeah, well. I get that. Um, and so we we have the cat's intention a lot in in, in this, and the cat is very cat-like um, in that it's selfish but also loving at the same time. It, it, she, she does it brilliantly. Essentially, the plot of Cat's Meat is um, there is a woman who has been abandoned with a child the husband has gone off uh, well, yeah the, the man has gone off uh, with someone else and then he comes back um, essentially to reclaim his birthright who he left with the woman and he's sort of trying to get back with her but also kind of not and 
it's her struggle. The, the, the main character's struggle is whether to sort of accept him back. No, definitely not. Is the instinct, um, but she kind of doesn't doesn't want him back. And the cat sees it through it all. The cat sees everything, and the cat is trying to defend its territory. The cat knows if the guy successfully moves back in, the cat will be out. Mm. Um, so the cat is defending its territory in various ways by you know tripping the guy up. Occasionally attacking him full on with claws, um, all kinds of things, and, and sort of tipping, tipping, tipping mummy, mummy off when he's doing bad things and things like that. So mm. it's it's very well written, and a cat lover will will enjoy it. Um, the cat meat story. It's my favourite of the three. Um, in this book, uh, Hob writes three stories. Um, Megan Lindholm run uh, writes seven. Uh, which isn't because it's unfairly and fairly biased towards Lindholm, but it's because she's a lot more concise than Hob. Okay. Um, she she can write a short story. She is disciplined with her structure in ways that Robin Hobb never can be. <laughs> Robin Hobb is uh, delightfully self-indulgent because I want to listen to her go on. <laughs> oh, amazing. <laughs> I, I have a feeling that's because, because you know, obviously it's the same person, but I have a feeling that it, when they're writing as Robin Hobb, they're, they're in the... Um, the, the world of the duchies, aren't they? The yes. World. Epic mode. And it's in epic mm. mode. And mm. because she she quite clearly has in her head that all the maps are laid out. Mm. She knows the history of the world. Mm. She knows the politics of the world. She has this entire world there. And she's got this very crude way of communicating what's going on in her brain to you, which is words. So every time, every story mm. she tells, mm. go on. I mean, I mean, the Robin Hood books are thick watches mm. of books. Yeah, she, she went out to write epic fantasy and yeah, she's done it brilliantly. <laughs> she's done it brilliantly, yeah. Um, whereas Megan Lindholm is, well, I think, I think she started out as a sci-fi writer and that, that comes through the, 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 and she's moved into fantasy. And she is, she's more disciplined with her form. And Short children's like stories, apparently, according to the internet. Well, yeah, that works. Those are, those, those are your two... YA. I'd say, they'd call it YA these days. They would, mm, yeah. The, the, those are your your, your two um, kind of Amsterdam band style, get good, play every day genres. Children's books are really hard to do. Children's oh, short yeah. stories are really hard to do. Yeah, sci-fi is really hard to do well. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. one of the but what they will both teach you is concision and accuracy and precision. Mm. You can you can take more liberties with fantasy. You can you can take a massive amount of liberties with. Um, Literature, which is apparently mm. a genre these days, um, <laughs> but with sci-fi, you kind of, you you have constraints, and mm. with children's books, you have very specific constraints. Mm-hmm. One of the pieces of writer's advice I've seen quite a lot is if you write what you want, but if you're inclined to write, you know, if you're trying to decide between writing this and that, and one of those is YA slash sci-fi. Try writing those because you'll learn. Yeah, mm. um, you, you know you'll learn more discipline that way. Or you should mm. do, um, which is the same with comics. Actually, um, a lot of people advise if you want to write comic scripts, if you want to write comic script, and also want to write novels, try writing comic script first because then you'll learn dialogue because comic because script or comic scripts are all dialogue. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting uh, writing theatre as well. Mm. Mm. Good for that. Um, I remember I was doing a creative writing course and I, I essentially wrote a theatre the, the, the teacher gave me I can't remember what she gave me now but it was, it was an assignment and I couldn't do it so what I did is instead is I wrote a theatre script about it and then expanded with a bit of narration in between 
said, it's the best thing you've ever written. I said, thanks. That's really good. Because, so you, you found yeah. your way of yeah. tackling that mm. that idea, and it yeah. was through that medium, and that's really cool. Anyway, the book. Yes, book. Moving back to the book. Um, So, the the Megan Lindholm stories, there there are seven of them. The first one is 60 pages long, and it's as close, I would say, stylistically, to a Hob crossover as as you're going to get, because she she does, she's got the space to deal with it in there. Um, And that's a science fiction one. So, um, A Touch of Lavender is is, is the opening story, and it's 60 pages long. It's very good. I, I liked it. It's it about. It sounds comfy from the title. It sounds comfy, and it's not. Oh. It sounds. It sounds like it's going to be a story about a couple of old ladies, isn't it? That's what it sounds like. It's going to be uh, with lovely knitwear. Um, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> for the win. However, it's not. It's it's basically set in a kind of ghettoized America, uh, where uh, some aliens have landed. In a sort of District Nine esque way, they're ghettoized. Uh, but the, so, they, but, the, but rather than being having their own shanty towns, they're, they're basically put into the poor neighbourhoods. Okay. Um, and the problem with them is uh, they secrete uh, a drug naturally through their skin, which once humans touch it, they become addicted to. Ooh. So um, it's, it's not a drug to themselves. It's, it's not a drug to themselves. Just no, it's just it's just ah, humans that get, that, that get it. Um, they they essentially the the, the 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 aliens are all musicians. That's part of the way they communicate. Human language is dreadfully toneless to them, and they communicate in sort of hoots and things like that. And every when you when a human touches their their slime. They it basically tunes you into what the aliens can hear, and you mm. end up just tripping balls on sounds and music. Well, I'd be so, safe uh, then. Why would you touch slime? No, no. So, envision of the jazz aliens. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, essentially. Yeah, and they, they do. The, 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 <laughs> that'd be a great title, alternative title for it. Um, yeah. The, the, why is it called a touch of lavender? Because um, one of the main characters in it is an alien um, prince in exile called Lavender. That's the oh, way okay. his his name translates into human language as something like lavender. Okay, so like um, pretty purple flower that smells nice and makes you feel sleepy. Yes, okay. it kind of it kind of works for intoxicating jazz aliens, yeah. um, and <laughs> they're, they're, they're not kind of they're no more good or evil as we are. They're certainly not. Well, it's, it, it, it's hard to know as to whether or not they're here to invade or whether they're genuinely in exile. Go Talk, on, you're making gestures. Yes. Talk aside, but Star Wars, right? Oh, I haven't seen the right. new one. Yet. No, no, never mind the new one. Right, okay. So, Return of the Jedi. Uh-huh. Jabba's Palace. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Slice Noodles is playing uh, music. Mm-hmm. That music has a specific um, genre type that Lucas created. He's like, oh. this. This is what this is called. Uh, there's a specific sort of subgenre. It's called. It's called apparently. I don't understand why people find this funny. Jizz. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Did Lucas know what he was doing when he called it that? Oh. <laughs> well, apparently Americans don't understand what Wazak means, so, you know. Who yeah, knows? who knows. Um, moving back on to <laughs> A Touch of Lavender. Um, <laughs> so it, it, the, the, uh, sorry, Colonials, if you are confused as to why we're giggling, it's because of language differences. Don't Google it. Uh, <laughs> anyway, books. <laughs> we're talking about books. 
Um, Producer in, Al is so very it, a touch of lavender. You've got you know uh, sort of metaphors for about racism and ghettoization and, and things like that. Um, also about uh, strangely about sort of autism and perception and things like that. She throws a lot in the pot and, for 60 and drugs. Pages, that's and yeah, and and drugs impressive. and all kinds of things and. Um, Parenthood, parenthood as well. Um, essentially, um, the main character is a child growing up who uh, whose mum ac- becomes friends with one of the aliens and accidentally uh, becomes addicted to his juices. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> is that accidentally in, in inverted commas? Um. Uh, well, it's kind of hard to avoid since he's kind of living in the house. Um, um, but oh. uh, so it's it's almost kind of that. It, oh, it, to an extent, in in my head, that has certain kind of Alan Moore parallels for kind of like let's all be angry with the authority because what? Why didn't anyone think about the fact that obviously housing housing creatures that can mm. create addictions with the people that they can accidentally addict yeah. to. Yeah, but then why carry on doing it once you know... Well, he wasn't deliberately housed there. He went there because he fell in love with the human woman okay. who he decided was the chosen one. Um, very. It, it, then the, 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 there becomes a sort of mm. whole destiny, who's the chosen one, why they're the chosen one. It, 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 it's a complicated story. It's not perfect. Um, is there, is, do you think there's room for that one to be expanded into a bigger... It could, I, I get the distinct impression I'm that there is a series of novels in there somewhere. I'm strongly yeah. reminded of Chinese Melville's stuff, especially Pedalo Street Station, mm. and that sort of, you know, here's an alien culture, here's another alien culture, they happen to have to live in the same ghetto, and they have nothing in common except this thing means they have to interact. Mm. Yeah, so that's very much because what Chernobyl Melville does quite a bit is he he world builds as well. Yeah, and he's also a D and D player, so mm-hmm. he actually he creates stats. Oh my goodness! And they're in Dragon Magazine, which is the magazine for Dungeons. <coughs> so Chernobyl Melville sat down and created rules so you can play the various species from his oh. station. Books. Amazing. In well, in in what system? Uh, it's D twenty. <laughs> okay. All right. So this makes sorry. The D twenty is the VHS of uh, roughing games. It's the standard format. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so anyone can play it, but it's an example of world building. And the thing is, he's taking these things that are kind of you know you clinically sit there and go, well, that's how those work. And then he sat down and made social commentary, which it sounds very similar to what you're saying. Where it's like, here is a world, here is a planet. Social commentary. Yes, yeah, that, that's that's exactly what, what she's done. It's not perfect, but it has got some lovely moments in it, uh, as you'd expect from a, a writer of her quality. Um, and then she then she flips the table completely, and she moves on to what is more or less fantasy chiclet. Uh, Silver Lady and the Forty-ish Man. Is uh, that is called? Yeah, that's what it's called. Silver Lady and the Fortyish Man. Okay. And they um, it, that that's you know it's about a, a woman in her sort of thirties who's tried to sort of get on with writing or whatever. It's not. It's clearly not her, but her. Not her, but her. Um, I mean, she's been happily married at this point in her life, so it's not her. But she's Just used maybe a different presenting. character. Yeah, yeah sure. Uh, who's sort of you know not doing particularly well, but work, ended up working in a department store in her life. She feels like her life's ebbing away, and this forty-ish man, as she describes him, who's someone who's a bit older than her, 
thinks maybe she could do better than, but is kind of flattered by, sort of comes into her life and sort of woos her. And the way he woos her is uh, by giving her uh, a gift of some lovely earrings and claiming that he's Merlin and that these earrings secretly belong to her. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, the, the book moves on. He may or may not be Merlin. I won't spoil the story for you. Uh, but it, it's interesting. There's, there's a certain amount of magical realism in there. And all the way through the story, you're questioning, is this magical realism or is this guy just a smooth con man? Or is, crazy person. Is this, or a crazy so person. Whistle down the wind, set in a department store. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it could, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 could, it could be that. And, you know, is he just wooing her? Is he just having her on? Um, it, it, it's lovely. It's lovely. It's I, a lovely little story. It's totally oh. sad, but I, I have a tale of a disastrous dating where a young man in essentially Time Lord drag is the best way to describe it. So, scarf, outrageous clothing goes on a date and um, at some point it's like so that's a very distinctive style and jokingly they say oh that's because I'm a time lord uh, and then just carry on and they're joking for the entire date but the reason the reason they didn't get to a second date is because she thought he was crazy <laughs> whereas actually it was a joke right was is like, this a story from your real life Ed? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have that fashion sense. No, of or course lack not. Of fashion sense. Of course not. So yeah, um, there's some there's some other good stories in here. So some of them, I mean, she moves, she moves on then from the silver lady to a, a very very short 15 page piece called Cut, which is a, a short sci- sci-fi piece about a grandmother talking to her granddaughter about the latest fashion fashion uh, accessory or fashion thing, which is. Um, female genital mutilation no. as a fashion choice as a fashion choice um, so it, it, it goes <laughs> from a room full of nope. yeah it goes from the conceptual to the whimsical to the deadly serious and, and you know again I won't tell you how that ends uh, but it's it, it, so she, she's, she's really flexing a lot of different muscles in this collection um, so obviously grandmother's trying to talk stupid granddaughter out of being mutilated Um, and then it goes back to whimsical again with a fifth squashed cat which is about uh, (laughs) about a woman about a woman who who picks up a hitchhiker uh, who claims that you can live a magical uh, you can basically essentially become a magical tramp that lives forever and enjoys perfect health Basically, by making a magical broth out of every fifth squashed cat you find on the road. <laughs> right, um, of course. Okay. That's a room full of questioning silence and raised eyebrows. <laughs> what? Yeah. This, oh, is, this book bonkers. is no longer being solved. <laughs> oh no! It's it's um. It, it's quite what? funny because it, it's, it, to me, this sounds like the, the traditional stone soup story. Yes. But with you know, <laughs> flat kitties. <laughs> well, essentially, it, it, it's it, it's a book about life choices. <laughs> do you? Do you? <laughs> do you? That's, do actually, you... that's actually an interesting point, though. If someone if someone turned around, t- turned around to you and then was able to convince you that they were much 
much older than they looked. Yeah. And were very, very, you know, very knowledgeable, very charming. And then they turn around and they say, here is this disgusting thing to eat. Yeah. It will make you immortal. And you're yeah. like, well, you're impressive, mm. but that's disgusting. <laughs> yes. Some people yeah. would do it, though. Like, don't people in the world inject urine into themselves in order to stay young? Uh, um, and like, themselves and and both, this, yeah, yeah, people do ridiculous things. To, so it's, it's completely plausible. Mm. I've eaten all sorts idea, of weird but things, but I was being paid, and, 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 <laughs> yeah. and you weren't being told it was a magical broth that would keep you young and healthy. So yeah, it, it becomes about life choices, and this woman's you know she's on a road trip to get out of Crapsville, Tennessee, or wherever she lives. And along the road, she she picks up this this guy, and you know the whole point is I'm going to go and make a better life for myself. I'm going to become prosperous, and he's saying, look, you don't have to become prosperous. You can just be happy. Stay on the road, eat the fifth squash cat that you come along to, <laughs> and it becomes about you know, am I going to choose prosperity or wandering happiness via the means of making a magical broth and eating cats? Mm. Uh, so it's a strange one. It's a strange one. Uh, <laughs> How many cats do people run over? Yeah, I don't know. It's America. Uh, stay stay on the road for long enough. Are a lot of cats house cats in America? Like indoor cats, and they don't go out. I don't know. Depends where you are. I suppose if there's yeah. lots of mm. wild cats as well. Uh, yeah, you've got wild, wild cats. cats. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it, it doesn't. I don't think it recalls in the story about how often you have to have this magical broth, but you do have to keep travelling. That's um, mental. So yeah. you have to keep travelling and you have to keep eating squash cats you and counting the squash oh, yeah, cats you, as you, you travel. I was going to yeah, say, yeah. do you have to eat every fifth squashed cat? Yes. Or can it be? I can't. I can't remember to be honest. Is, is the squash thing is a cat and not like I don't know a beaver, a possum? Yeah. What do you call that supernatural creature? Because it's someone who has to constantly eat blood to remain. Mm. Immortal is a vampire. Mm. So are mm. they? Are they a cat broth? This is this is twenty two pages long. It doesn't quite address are, are all these over, issues. Over, <laughs> <analyzing> <laughs> I, I want to play the World of Darkness tabletop game Brothpire. Bro- yeah, Brothpire. Broth yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Um, so th- th- there are some other stories by Lindholm in there, and that there is an equal amount of variety. So if you like variety in style, and then she moves on to Hob. Uh, so there are three Hob stories. There's Cat's Meat that we've already discussed. Mm-hmm. There's The Homecoming, uh, which if you know Hob stuff, it's it's someone from um, Jamalia. Right. Um, this kind of vaguely kind of... I, I, I don't know if it's got a comparison. There's exotic. Ex- exotic. Exotic in the... Uh, so you, you've got a, a Jamalian noblewoman who is being sent to live in a, in a colony, essentially. It's a bit like going to the Americas. Um, that's what she thinks she's being sent to the colony to live there a life of uh, genteel prosperity um, what they're not telling her is that the colony is in the rain wilds which is essentially a place full of poison and, and creatures and jungle and it's less colonisation more exile um, as she discovers when she gets there um, and it's it's the Amazonian rainforest with more monsters. It is, uh, and and mad, wild magic that makes you mad. Um, so and dragons and dra- well, the dragons Thorns. potentially, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, always the possibility of dragons, especially with Robin Hood. This is this is the story of a woman's sort of breakdown as she watches her children sicken because of all the rain, wild poison, and 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 and, and ha- having to abandon her gentility and go a bit jungle Jane. 
Um, it's good. It's very very nicely done. Uh, not my favourite because Cat's Meat is my favourite. Um, the Inheritance is. I don't know how Hobb does it, but she managed to write a twenty-five page Robin Hobb story. It shows in that it's my least favourite of the three, <laughs> but okay. it is. It's quite good, and it, this is the story of somebody who inherits a. Um, again, uh, with, with a bit like Cat's Meat, uh, bad male partner situation, but she brings out her old inheritance, which is uh, uh, something from her grandmother, and it's it's a little brooch, uh, not a brooch. What's the what's the dangly thing? The necklace, necklace, necklace. necklace. pendant, pendant. Um, but it's made of the magical wood that they make the live ships out of. Oh, okay. And it starts talking to her. When oh, she brings it out, okay, and it, it, it contains the collective wisdom of all the female members of her family. Oh my uh, god, no! Uh, yes, Take it off, right. put it in a box, put it in a cupboard. <laughs> yeah, there's a thing about the live ship series, um, in they have these little, um, the little pendants made out of the special yes. magical wood. Yeah, um, if you have like a belly button piercing, if you're a lady, you have belly button piercing of the wood, uh, it stops pregnancy. So they're really useful little. Weird magical items, if you see what I mean. Mm. But their origins are a bit exotic, shall we say, and people mm. don't quite understand them. So they don't trust them, but at the same time, they're really useful. They are really <laughs> useful, yeah. And this this woman really has to kind of strike out and go against a lot of people's advice to listen to the pendant. Um, and she uh, she finds herself on a little adventure going back to, uh, to, to Bing Town, uh, where her family are from, and, and that's a trading town. And the... The, the live ships are literally live ships so if you make an entire ship out of this wood and it's the most expensive exotic wood you can find but if you make much of a ship out of this wood um, the masthead talks it's, all, it's a bit Anne McCaffrey isn't it it's a little bit Anne McCaffrey I think well, no, the, ships have, the ships have a personality they're great mm. the fact that they're made by sacrificing three people details details and spoilers do they, do they know everything that's going on inside though as no well? no so only the only the, it's, the only, it's only the masthead figurehead, that really, yeah, yeah, the... yeah so they're, they're okay. not just there like talking to you while you're having a poo in the <laughs> in the back room <laughs> of course <laughs> unless you make a point would. to have a poo right in front of the figurehead that would make you a bit twisted <laughs> weird <laughs> Let's not do it. Um, it's pretty. <laughs> no, 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 we are talking about because that's yeah. the problem. A lot of these are making me sad so far. Um, yes, I'm afraid Robin Hobb will make you sad. Oh. That is the the curse of Robin Hobb. All the main characters are angst-ridden. What's worse is they do it to themselves. But is it like yeah. sad in like a David Gemma way, where even though I'm sad, I yeah. still would would not take back that relationship I have with those, those yes. people. Yeah, yes. I, would, I would go with that. Okay. Definitely. The she she does that she does that horrible horrible thing where she she welcomes you into her mind, uh, invites you to have a bit of a wonder that makes you very sad. Yes, um, but gives you so such lovely stories that you come back. Definitely, definitely. Okay. I mean, you were mentioning Night Eyes the Wolf in the Wick context before, so we make friends with, along with the main character, we make friends with a wolf called Night Eyes, and they speak to each other with the wit, and he has his own voice. He's very cheeky and independent, and we love him. So the next book set twenty years later. How long do we think a wolf is going to live? Oh. And I've got a German Shepherd in my house at the moment who I love, and I'm going to have to let go, and it 
I'm reading that book at the same time and it's not good. That's because Simon <coughs> fosters dogs. Yeah. Not because Simon not because is he evil. Takes dogs and then <laughs> <them>. No, <laughs> no. I foster dogs. On, on. Get your adventuring pack. Go find a wasteland adventurer. And I and I and I watch her trot ahead of me like Night Eyes does in the book, and it's oh god. Yeah. So that's what Robin Hood does. Um, she makes you sad and like it. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> A bit like My Chemical Romance, but no. that's cheesy. <laughs> Ed. The grown-ups. The grown-ups, yes. Starburst Radio. The greatest radio show in the universe. Every Wednesday, 9pm till 11pm. Exclusive to Fab Radio International. Oh, hello. So we were talking about uh, Megan Lindholm. Mm-hmm. Um, the inheritance specifically, weren't we? Uh, Sai has gone off on a special magical adventure. Yes. Um, so it's just myself and Del, hello, and producer Al, obviously. Um, obviously. <laughs> so, shall we, while we're on the topic, shall we talk about the James James Tree? I'll say that again, James Tiptree Junior Award, which is an annual literary prize for works of science fiction and or fantasy that expand or explore one's understanding of gender. It was uh, invented in February 1991 by science fiction writers Pat Murphy and Karen Joy Fowler, um, a subsequent to a discussion at WizCon, which I believe was a Worldcon at the time. Um, so, no, it was just a just a convention where they were talking about things and talking about feminist literature in specific. So they thought, mm-hmm. let's have a, an award specifically to raise the concept of... raise awareness about gender. Okay. Um, the award is named after uh, Alice B. Sheldon, who wrote under the pseudonym of James Tiptree, Junior, um, they chose a masculine non de plume so they could get published, is the short version. Uh, mm-hmm. Sheldon was also making a point they wanted to demonstrate that there was a difference between male and female science fiction writing um, that had been artificially created and that it was complete nonsense. Okay. And also uh, apparently tired of being a pioneer in every damned um, job she ever had. Because she also worked in intelligence and, and the Air Force and had a PhD and things, all of which uh, were apparently, you know, not things that women did. Because you know, what time frame was this? When was when was Sheldon writing? Um, Sheldon Sheldon was well. She was born in nineteen uh, fifteen. She was okay. active between nineteen sixty eight and nineteen eighty eight, uh, mostly new fiction at the time. Yeah, so yeah, uh, not a lot of women would have had PhDs back then, and yeah, especially mm-hmm. the idea of working in intelligence and so and air force and things. Um, and, and she was one of those people with a complicated, according to Wikipedia, it says a complicated sexual orientation, or as we call it, a sexual orientation. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. It's easy to fit into a very small square box, therefore must be weird. <laughs> I have to admit, I've not read any of Tiptree's work, so I, I we will set it as an assignment at some point for the show. Um, but I think it's always worth mentioning, because uh, Tiptree Awards... Every year, there's more and more entries, and there's more and more people engaging, and there's more and more people interested in it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's probably a, why there's more entries then. If people are interested, write it. But it's it's one of those weird things that uh, the reason Mr. Carey is Mr. Carey mm-hmm. is he has deliberately called himself Mr. Carey because there are a lot of female writers who just just do their initials and they keep their gender vague. So Mike Carey's response is, well, if they have to do it, then why shouldn't I? Oh, right. See, I, di- I didn't know that. That's a lovely thing. 
to find out. I just assumed it was to create that distinction of like Mike Carey is graphic novels and Mr. Carey is is like literature based novels. But he could have called himself Michael mm-hmm. Carey. Yeah, easily. good point. So he went for Mr. Uh, Mr. Carey. He went for Mr. Carey as a as a point of. I love him even more. But but J.K. Rowling is J.K. Rowling for exactly the same reason, isn't she? Because somebody said you can't sell books about a, a male child um, in a school sort of environment oh, if you are a woman author. Joe Joe is such a a, a woman's name. Yeah. Absolutely. What? Oh dear. You see, I I frequently I've done this once or twice on the show where I get a name the gender wrong. Yeah. Because it's like, well, I don't. To be honest, I don't. I, I don't care. What, no, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to me at all. And the only the only reason I care is if I upset the author for, get, yeah. for, for getting you know for, for for getting their their identity wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, it just oh goodness me! But when we were last at Edgelit, again they were talking about this, and it wasn't the thing is Edgelit is a very well put together convention. Edgelit is Derby, isn't it? Yeah, Edgelit yeah. is Derby. Uh, if you're not in the UK, um, Edgelit is Derby is. Middle of the country? Yeah, Derby's like Peak middle District, England, middle-ish, yeah. Um, is it middle of the country-ish, depending on how you define the country. Uh, there's that as well. And it's uh, it's essentially a writer's convention for writers of, of your genre thing. So it's mostly fans and people who are who big, 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 big fans and lots and lots of writers. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't do something as crass as a, a woman's panel because forget that movie so that's ridiculous it but, highlights a problem that and therefore makes it a problem yeah but what they did do is they did a panel where various people you know the various people in the industry were talking about their struggles with the industry and the definitions mm-hmm. and it was a panel about definitions and marketing mm-hmm. and obviously um he, he very carefully picked i think it was joe harris um the lady who wrote the 15 lives of harry august claire north claire north Someone else and Emma Carey were all in one room. It's a cracking panel. Yeah. And they're, they're talking about all this. And uh, of course, the conversation drifts towards the issue of gender. I have this argument. It's one of the questions that you'll have heard me ask time and time again on the previous show, The Bookworm, is that I tend to ask authors is there a diversity problem in the you know, Is there a diversity problem in genre literature? Do we have a problem? Are we. and depressingly my depressing report is guys don't think there's much of a problem we think we're on it and everyone else disagrees if you're a white bloke you think we're sorting the problem out if you're not a white bloke you're well aware that there's more of a problem we've got ages to go Mm. on that issue but um, but this is probably just that you know everyone already knows. Surely, surely yeah. this is the problem: is that you end up thinking, surely everyone knows this. Surely, surely we shouldn't keep going on about this. But but no, they don't. And yes, we have to keep going. Um, I've, mm-hmm. I've 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 driven myself down a less, uh, made myself slightly sad now. Oh, don't be sad. Because I think as well, um, sometimes yes, it doesn't matter and it's well, it's not so much it doesn't matter sorry what i mean is um gender shouldn't matter as much as it does and it is very important to start to to pull down those distinctions um in order for for there to be more equality because if it didn't matter then then there would be equality 
but at the same time you do need those power voices highlighting that we're not there yet in order for people to notice that those changes need to occur um, I was talking to a friend at a barbecue um, a couple of summers ago now actually and we were just talking about this and I was saying about um, one of the issues in terms of um, sexism from that I think is the biggest problem is things like we just don't notice that we use distinctions in our language that don't matter we distinguish gender at times when actually gender has has nothing to do with it um and then us then we kind of got into that conversation a bit more but he said he was like because when we started talking about reading and based on that he said he was like i actually feel really bad that i don't remember the last time i read a book written by a female author and I was like, well, to an extent, though, that's not because you're going, oh, this has been written by a woman. I don't want to read this. Um, but I was like, but also, you probably have. It's just that it didn't matter to you that it was written by a woman. And I was like, and that's that's a, a positive thing in, in many regards, because you've not been like, oh, I'll, I'll read this because it's a lady. Um, <laughs> like, Claire, yeah. uh, both Claire North uh, and um, Joe Harris and E.L. Kennedy in fact, have uh-huh. all had letters from idiots going, oh, well, you know, and, and complaining about their books but bringing sex into it. Why? Yeah, why? Why, why would you do that? My, one of my friends uh, is a lecturer at a university, he's a philosophy lecturer, and he put a thing out on Facebook um, basically saying that I need, I'm need, i doing this module, I need to put some um, female research, female written research on my reading list. Can anyone think of anything? And um, I mean, granted, it's, it's not that I'd have written it any differently or I wouldn't have written it, but I'd had a couple of glasses of wine because it was after <laughs> Sunday dinner. Um, not that it affected it at all in the message. It was only the next day when I got a reply from him. But it's not it's not awful and it's not particularly ranty. But I basically said to him, um, I was like, people should be on your reading list because they deserve to be there, not because they have a vagina. Um, I would be, I would personally be really upset if I ever found out that the reason I was ever getting accolade for anything was because I was a woman and not because my work deserved to be there. Um, and he messaged me back, um, just basically saying, like, that is a really valid point. And while I would love to to go along with it, he was like, if I put a reading list out with no female authors, uh, I will be in a lot of trouble. And I was like, that's... Oh, I can see how people would think that is the way to combat it, is to be like, oh, well, just make sure there's diversity because that's how we combat equality issues. But at, at the same time, I don't think that's fair to those people because that then suggests that that's the only reason they're on the list rather than the fact that they worked really hard and they produced an amazing thing. That's the that's the um, uh, the eternal problem of conversations about uh, of this sort of conversation. Is that because we're talking about a very binary thing, which isn't a binary thing? Because yeah. we're talking about <laughs> men and women, we assume that there's two sides. They aren't. No. So they are they are men who genuinely have no clue about what they've never thought about it. They, they are either self-centred or they're young or they're dumb or whatever. They've never thought about it. So when they encounter an angry person, male or female, talking about 
gender issues, mm -hmm. they will ask really stupid questions because they haven't bothered to look it up for themselves, or they've tried to look it up for themselves, but because they don't have a frame of reference, they're not getting the right information. Or worse, they found themselves on a rubbish, pointless website like Breitbart or somewhere ridiculous, so they've got the wrong information today. They don't know what they're talking about today. They're lost. So they pop up, and they're like, help? At which point, other people might assume that they're trying to change the conversation or alter the conversation or make mm. the conversation about themselves because they are people who genuinely do that all the time to those conversations because they're just idiots and they're just you know they're sexist or whatever they have an agenda and you can't tell you can't tell what side someone's on in the internet conversation you can't mm -hmm. tell what they're you can't and they're not gonna they're not gonna set out their stall because many people aren't gonna set out their stall because they they have an agenda and they want to change things so it all gets terribly complicated and most people just want life to be simple so we just go ah why why can't it be easier so i suppose the conclusion i'm coming there is why don't all authors just go by their surname? That would make it easier. It'd be unfair, because mm. I've got a really cool first name. Yeah. I think it's... I agree, because of the fact I am of the standpoint that it shouldn't matter. But I understand that the only way... Because of the fact that we are not there yet, using that identity to, to kind of help um, empower will help, like, bridge the gap because showing not not in like, i'm a woman i'm a woman but seeing the fact that more people and it's not just like it's not gender just diversity in in, in general seeing that there are people who um who are like you doing something gives you the courage to do it yourself mm. um and so yes it shouldn't it doesn't matter but i understand the idea of using it as a as a power thing um see so was it was it matt Damon, last, I mean, it's a slightly different issue, but um, it might not have been Matt Damon. I feel like it was Matt Damon. Um, or Chris Pine. They're not the same, but blonde actors. <laughs> One of them last year was saying about the fact that um, actors just shouldn't tell people what their actual sexuality is because it doesn't matter. Oh, yeah. Which is fair enough, and I completely understand that point of view. But then I completely understand people like Miriam Margulies who, um, if someone says the word lesbian when she's on interview, she'll be like, I'm one of those. Um, and she did it on Graham Norton. And she was sat she, next to Will she's I Am. She's so up for the bar. She's, oh my God, she is amazing. Um, but she was sat next to Will I Am and someone said the word lesbian. And yeah, she was like, I'm one of those. Will I Am started dying laughing. And she was like, no, it's important to say it because it gives people courage. And I, so I understand both those arguments that actually, yeah, you're, the, it, sh it shouldn't matter but it also helps empower because of the fact that we're not quite at the place where everyone thinks it shouldn't matter. Sorry, my brain is now full yeah. of Miriam Margulies. Miriam Margulies. Because she's in um, The Friend everything. of Fisher. She's in everything. But she's, in <laughs> Miss, in everything yeah. she's in Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. Is she? Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. As the aunt, as the aunt <gasps> who gets in the way of all of the naughtiness. She's like the she, naughtiness she's police. So, she's very thin and very proper. I love very English aristocracy. She's in End of Days. She's in everything. She's in everything. But, uh, oh, you see, you see, I love desperately trying try to. But there's there's a thing where uh, I've noticed this a thing with, uh, with male uh, writers. 
at panels and conventions and this sort of thing. We talk about panels and conventions a lot because it's part of the book writing and reading scene. Mm. Um, That's how you meet people as well, isn't it? Like We've met lots of writers because of conventions. If, as we've said, you're a writer, you spend a lot of time sat in a room on your own. Mm. typing and so conventions and things when you get a chance to go outside and meet other people and other human beings yeah and there's a world out there the so writers Paul that were Cannell famously does this thing where he will not appear on a panel uh, unless it's gender balanced okay um which on the one hand is well done paul that's yeah. really yes. good that's brilliant i would add two things not everyone can do that there are yeah. other there are other writers who are, who are relatively new. They've got one or two books out. They've tried it. At which point the convention organizer just scores. Well, we'll not put you on a panel then because we can't. Yeah. And you are not of as much value. Whereas we definitely want Paul Cannell because he's really established and he will be a draw. Mm-hmm. You aren't. So bye. you're going to live by. Yeah. And that's you know it's a, it's a use of weapons thing. You've got to decide where you're gonna pitch. What you should do, of course, as a as a new writer and you want you know, you want more gender balance is for you to turn around and say, I'm more interested in gender balance panels, I'm more interested in this. Please tell me what your policies are in regard to Yeah. As a guest I'm very interested in the world being a fairer place and I that... can't think of the word. I think it begins with an an a affirmative action. Mm. Yeah. Um I think that is as much of a problem as discrimination sometimes because sometimes people get overlooked because you can I say employ but it's not just an employability thing but sometimes people are overlooked because someone who fits a better diversity bracket but is not as suitable as them will will get the 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 thing um and that, yeah, it's it's, it's, it's almost, problematic. It's problematic, especially when it comes to panels. It can be quite problematic because you simply you're sitting there thinking, "Yeah, actually, this person isn't contributing. Why isn't this person contributing?" And you've got to, you've got to, you've got to balance. Having that, been there, that, you've got to balance your panel with with knowledge first. Yeah, knowledge first. And but uh, but also, else. is that not a fault of your share of your panel to an extent? Yeah. In that they should be bringing out the person who's quieter. Yeah. Um, and, and you should have prepared all your panellists beforehand because if you know what your panel is going to be about you can go away and research it and figure out what, what it's going to be oh, about oh my god goodness as someone who's moderated quite a few panels at this point um, you have to be really careful because you can you can go down you, if you know someone who talks way too much um, you can go down a little bit too hard on them and then you won't say anything and you're like no but I need you to contribute yeah. I just don't want you to talk for two and a half hours yeah the panel is 45 minutes <laughs> and it's not just about you uh, and it can be quite it's a really tricky balance to do and it's really hard to do but um, mm. finding the thing that someone because like I said sometimes yeah people they don't feel they can contribute because it's not their area but then when you get them on their area they have very insightful things to say and so it, it's difficult then to be like but then that means I need to get you to that point we've also done this terrible thing where we've talked about Robin Hobb and then we've immediately <laughs> started talking about you know, and then frankly, we could be talking about Robin Hobbs. Oh, especially but... because weren't we originally going to be talking? We haven't actually made the point that we were going to talk about Robin Hobb about because wasn't this all about explaining why she has two, why there was an issue with her having two, she two names? She she wasn't getting um, as much attention, so she went for a gender neutral name of Robin. 
But is, is not oh. her book infamously the one where the characters, the main character's gender is never specified? Okay, so Fitz and the Fool. Uh, Fitz, we know Fitz is a guy. Um, and we are, because of the world, because of the, the, the duchies and because of Buckkeep, we're pretty sure that he is um, a heterosexual, we think, maybe, probably. And to explain that term to the people at home. Straight. <laughs> um, I'm being stared at by the producer. Um, a guy, guy is twitching slightly. A, 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 a guy who likes women. But he doesn't really think about The character doesn't really think about sex because he's too busy mobbing. Mm. Oh, he's uh, emo. He's very emo. His best friend is the fool. The fool is androgynous. Is is is, is is flat out androgynous. Are they like androgynous and kind of asexual to go with it? Ish, yes. Okay. Spoilers. Oh, sorry. They are dials, and the dials get played with. Okay. So uh, not on, not literally on the character, but they, they are dials in the relationship. Mm-hmm. The fits and the fool are as close as two people can be, spiritually and personally. They're very close to each other, and their relationship is complicated mm-hmm. and involved. So again, a relationship. <laughs> yeah, again, a relationship. <laughs> then we le- read an entirely different set of books set in the same world. And we're giving a surprise. And I'm not going to explain what the surprise is. Okay. Because spoilers. But it changes the way that you see the previous relationship. Okay. Or it can do, depending on, depending on your own proclivities. And what she's done is she basically, she doesn't, she's never, she's never even just, she doesn't even just, you know, she doesn't, she's not explicit. She just says, this is a thing that's here. Yeah. These are the things here. This is their relationship. These are two people Two souls who exist, who love each other very much because of the, you know, they love each other. The rest of it is irrelevant. And it's brilliant and it's brave and it's clever. Mm-hmm. So is that why she was nominated for Tip tip Tree? Was it that that got her? Uh, no, she was, um, to be honest, I think we just brought up Tip, tip Tree because it's the most interesting example. Oh, um, okay. She didn't. She uh, Robin Hobb. Interestingly, Robin Hobb's never really been nominated for a tip tree. Oh, uh, sorry. Just because earlier on, it, when it came up, I assumed it was because there was a connection there. Um, oh. uh, it's the women hiding as men thing. Isn't it's it? the women hiding okay. as men, and James Tiptree, of course, is famous for being the the primary example of that. Yeah. Um, interestingly, Ursula Le Guin uh, was given a retrospective uh, award for The Left Hand of Darkness. Ursula Le Guin, of course, being the strongest female. I would argue that she is the strongest, strongest female voice. I've, I've seen writing. a thing yeah. on Tumblr this week where she uh, refuses to have one of her books forwarded by Brian Aldis. Yes, <laughs> because it's interesting as well. Because while I agree with you, I also think that she's one of the least read. Yes. So I do like you're looking at me like I'm mental, no, no, but no, so no, few right. people have actually like it's, I don't think people have, have heard of Tales of Earthsea um, because people love. Studio Ghibli and Hayao Miyazaki's son directed uh, a film of three of the four Earthsea books, um, which they amalgamated into one story. Not not quite, but nearly very successfully. Um, I, I, but I think that's the only reason why loads of people I know 
so have heard of that story. I and I'm, I'm having a quick. Mental. I'm having a quick look on the old Wikipedia's, and I am fairly sure I have never read any of this. So book. by the I mean, age, I've heard of it. You know, I'm aware by, yeah. of it. By the age of eighteen, I devoured, devoured all of Tolkien, all of Lewis. I'd read Alan Garner. I'd read the Chronicles Oh, Alan Pride. Garner. I'd read the Chronicles Pride in. I had done a big long list of what people would describe as, as classics. I'd gone back to you know the people who were an influence on, on Tolkien. I'd, I'd done the whole thing. It took me to the age of nineteen before a, a lady friend of mine tapped me on the shoulder and went, "Read this," and I had never heard of Ursula Le Guin at that point. Mm. And it completely threw me as a as a reader. Yeah, it was just one of those kind of. We, we should do. We should actually. We should do as an assignment. We should all do the Wizard of S- FC and then yeah. come back. But oh my goodness, it was one of those. Uh, someone that I knew for, for for years afterwards, brilliant, brilliant reader, actually quite a talented person. It totally threw me. Totally threw me. The, the book itself. You know, this friend is going. You should read these. And then I read read her, I read Ursula Le Guin's books. And I was just like, "Oh my goodness, this is yeah. very good." Um, and she's been a massive influence on. She's a massive influence on the world of science fiction. Um, we very briefly occasionally talk about David Langford and Ansible. He just uh, David Langford is a super fan. It's the best way to describe him. Uh, he's written all sorts <laughs> of. Fanist of fans. He's the fanist of fans, uh, and he's written all sorts of uh, encyclopedias and works and stuff to do with science fiction and fantasy. And his newsletter is called Ansible, uh, which it's is what a, his website's called. His website's called Ansible, and it's a direct reference to Ursula Gwynn. Um, and it's kind of she's one of the writers that's become. Have we met him, David Langford? Yes. Yes. Mm. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm on Wikipedia and I'm looking at the picture and I'm going, no, we've met him at something. Ansible has all the news. Ansible does have all the news. All the news. Uh, it's a great website and um, obviously, mm. the exception of his choice, uh, with the exception of his um, choice of magazine to write for. <laughs> this is Fab Radio International. <laughs> Uh, you're listening to Brave New Words, uh, which is sponsored by Starburst magazine, uh, which is the same word, name as a regular column on uh, the world of book news. Um, this is the Starburst magazine is the longest running magazine of science fiction, fantasy, horror, and cult entertainment in general. Other magazines do exist, but don't. <laughs> um, but it's going. I was quite similar in that I knew who Ursula Le Guin was um, but because anyone who's heard me on, on this or the previous shows before knows that the list is a thing um, she was quite far down the list and it, I didn't actually get to her until I was in my early 20s and it's like you said I read it and it's just that moment where I was just like why was this not clo- like towards the beginning of the list like why didn't I get to this ages ago and I, was like, I just didn't realise the importance of this name until I read it and then eyes opened and it was yeah it's it's a, a, a whole new world of literature she's on uh, to be honest when it comes to if it comes to fantasy and science fiction Von Hobb Ursula Le Guin um, are now one of the places where I start yeah. to start talking about fantasy uh, if I'm trying to get someone into fantasy, though, I actually go with Jen Williams. 
of these days I say read the copper promise because it's so much fun um, because it's modern it's new um, it's easily available on the shelves mm. and it's one of those books that you, you know, if you're going to make the effort to have read if you're going to make an effort to have read go into fantasy read something that's new that not everyone has read because then you can have mm. a distinct opinion when you're talking about fantasy books that you've read um, and I'm kind of confident that one's going to last for a while as well I'm fairly confident about that but um, yeah it's uh, diversity shouldn't be a thing but it is yeah um, I try not to be conscious of, when we're putting together the show we try not to be conscious about it but obviously we're having an entire show about it so, yeah. yeah that kind of accidentally happened didn't it yeah I suppose, as, as suppose we've got that out of the way I'm so, yeah, and I sort, sort of pleased it it did yeah, surprised but pleased gone in that direction just that the reason that we're doing these voices is because this was kind of an off the cuff yes this, this, this was planned bl- based on the book that Simon had in his bag <laughs> really yeah it was I, that, I, that makes us sound ridiculous but there's a, obviously there's a lot more planning to it than that but there really isn't but t- today <laughs> yeah it was like Simon's brought a book he can talk about it neither myself nor Ed have read it and would like to hear um, and then it created that I think with Robin Hobb as well, the the appeal for me with short stories from Robin Hobb is the fact that most of her books are epic. Yeah, I can I can see that the the draw of someone who writes and but from the sounds of it, not only writes epics but writes epically to create a short story using the same format is a very interesting concept. And yeah, you'd want to you'd want to see how that panned out. It's, it's one of those things with writing, uh, just talking about identity in general. Um, when we interviewed we, we interviewed Robin Hobb for uh, the previous show because uh, she was at Worldcon and had the opportunity and of course you would if you mm. have the oh, chance to absolutely <laughs> would um, and someone grabbed me and went who are you interviewing is it Robin Hobb or Megan Lindholm and mm. I suddenly realised the point they were making yeah which is like actually no I'm interviewing Robin Hobb because we're, we're a genre book show and those though Megan Lindholm writes science fiction she doesn't have a book out but Robin Hobb does but that's an interesting thing where could you get two interviews from the same person <laughs> from the same person <laughs> because their writing is different people mm. and therefore they're talking about different subjects yeah. and it's that strange I haven't read but if you are that person how do you separate that in your head yeah well if you think as soon as Simon um, started talking about the inheritance it was like it's a really interesting idea to co-write your own book um, and the only time I've heard oh. of that before is um, Terry Pratchett with where he was like I co-wrote this old Younger. Terry Pratchett co-wrote this with young Terry Pratchett and annoyingly I can't remember which one it is I want to say carpet people it's the carpet people brilliant yeah um, and I, that's that's a fantastic idea to have because I think that's not only branding but that's compartmentalising as well and I loved that one of the things from that was the fact that Simon was referring to two people who he clearly like loves very much, um, and that's that's lovely as well. Um, oh. to to inspire that sort of feeling just from stories that you can tell. Do you know what I want now? A cup of tea. I want a book <laughs> about crime in the world of Harry Potter, and I want it to be a crime story written by J.K. Rowling. And Robert Galbraith. And Robert Galbraith. <laughs> and I want the two to collab- collaborate 
And do you know what? I want to interview Robert Galbraith about that book. Not J.K. Rowling. I want to interview Robert Galbraith. She was actually she was on um, Simon Mayer's book club recently, um, being interviewed, and she was talking about when those books first came out before mm. anybody knew it was her. Before it got leaked. Um, yeah, leaked. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, she was. Producer she was, Al has just put some very yeah. sceptical um, air bracket. <laughs> Uh, Ebony's. That's a really good way of describing it. Because I can never remember the word. Yeah. But she was saying it was really difficult because they were like, Robert Galbraith is available for email interviews, but he's not available for face to face or telephone. But we still need to promote this book. And author interviews are technically available, but not really. <laughs> no, yeah. basically. Yeah. No. It is very. In- speaking you, you, as- yeah, you sometimes interview people on email, don't you? It can be very interesting sometimes. I uh, was asked on behalf of Starburst magazine to interview uh, people who do the dinosaur erotica novels. Oh yes, um, stuff like I Fell in Love with a T Rex, the sort of silly kind of daft stuff that you can get on Amazon, where you know it's a story about a woman who falls in love with a velociraptor. This sort of, you know, oh, that's a bit scratchy. They're, 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 they're silly fun and they're intended to silly fun <laughs> yeah. but I was asked to interview the authors and I was like I bet you it will be a live interview and of course it wasn't because they're quite clearly in the various pseudonyms yeah. and you know the speculation was you know there's quite a bit of speculation as to who they really are Yeah, I do have my favourites but I'll not go into it on a live broadcast I think it's um, interesting that they don't tell like it's not even like an off the record kind of like like, oh, just like, so you, like this yeah, like you think you can't, it, even they don't even want the people who are dealing with it who probably know to know. Uh, I quite like you that. will have you will I occasionally like have a conversation with a publisher where the publisher will say, um, "These the, this is this is a pseudonymous author," mm. and they'll just flat out tell you. Yeah. Um, and the it's question like the you don't ask is, "Well, who is it then?" Yeah, yeah. it's <laughs> like the woman who did die of a call girl before. It became new, oh, know who she yes. was, yeah, and and various she people knew who she was. And when they adapted it to a TV show, she was still unknown. But yeah. Billy Piper had this very odd meeting with her, apparently. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, but it became understandable once you found out who she yeah. was. Um, even and though, also I mean, she, well, she, got, she extent, got a heads up that she was about to be exposed. Yeah, it's it, done something very clever with Google. Search. It's understandable to an extent, but there also was a bit sad that it's like, even though that is the world you're in now, it's it's a shame that people wouldn't be able to be like, well, that's even if they did judge you yeah. for that, wouldn't be able to be like, oh, well, that's the past. Um, yeah, but, but again, had you know, if she was a man, would it be different? Probably. Um. <laughs> See that that heads into a conversation because I, I know nothing about. Yeah, sex see, industry. I don't, I don't know, personally, mm. in terms of sex industry, I don't know. Um, the same way that most most actors who've been involved in pornography will try and hide that, yeah. irrespective of their gender. Um, I don't know. Pros- uh, well, the the difference between prostitution and pornography is a very different debate um, for a very different show, not related to to literature. <laughs> Um, but in terms of those parallels, if you can find a science fiction novel that, that or a fantasy novel that deals with those issues, so be, uh, <laughs> I know someone's going to write in and suggest yeah. Charlie Stoss as well. 
this, 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 and this. Thanks. There's, there's a there's a Charlie Strauss book about a character where um, essentially mankind's long since gone, mm-hmm. and the main character is a companion robot. Oh. But they aren't any humans. Aww. Oh no! Oh, I'm so sad. Oh. I think sometimes it's, it's again. This is a different thing as well. Um, but so in that area, there are differences uh, based on certain outcomes. This idea of um, a, a, a dying population from gender point of views. Um, there's uh, like um, two two twenty eight days later when i watched that film um i watched it with my group of friends from home um and all the lads were like oh it's yes yeah, quite quite a good film quite enjoyed that all the girls were like that's terrifying that's a really scary and horrible film um because from what that that film and that story created if that ever happened um and we were in a situation where humanity was was down to hardly anything um, there's a certain reality in that film that yes, women women would face, and that's a scary concept. But oddly enough, there's and this is going way back now, um, but it's brilliant, and it should be uh, to anyone who's listening who has the power, put it on Netflix. Um, there's a Sliders episode where one of the worlds they go to, men are like pretty much dying out, and so there are like clinics where women go, and you basically have an appointment, and you shag one of the men in the clinic and they have like and that's that's their job men's jobs is to be there and every hour shag a different woman in the hopes that they'll become pregnant and repopulate but then it was like they had like breeder of the month posters and stuff and it was like a celebrated thing and all the guys in the clinic thought it was amazing but and then you've got uh jerry o'connell and Oh, see, now I, I also want to call him Jonathan Rhys-Meyers, but now it's because I can't remember which one's which. Uh, Gimli from Lord of the Rings, yeah, yeah. who was the professor in Sliders. Um, their characters, because they, they're in this town, because it's Sliders, and they just ended up where they end up, they basically just get taken to the clinic straight away. And they think it's horrible. And they're just like, what's happening? I don't Get me out. What's... Oh, God. I don't... Ah! Oh, but all the men in the clinic are like, yeah! Sex! And it was, like, really odd. That simply because you're looking at it from a different perspective, for some reason you think the emotions would be completely different. Um, and I know like, there's that whole male bravado of people who'd be like, well, of course, yeah, loads of sex. Like, of course, why would they hate it? But I'm sure that wouldn't be the case, really, no, surely. You're still You'd being, feel used. You're, you're, being, you're being enslaved. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's you're, absolutely... You're, you're being enslaved and you're being slavery. reduced to one thing. And you're, you're just becoming a breeding machine. It's an, in, it's an interesting way of writing that story because it's written from the other it's been written from the other perspective many many times because it's a scary scary thing because it's a scary scary thing but if you switch it on it's turn it on its head mm. suddenly guys who might not have gotten it will get it yeah and it's 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 interesting that you can you know that's that's the purpose of fiction jonathan maybury is one of those people who uh, he's a horror writer and he he does seem to use that trope. It's a, it's a trope now, you know. The the you know, or everyone's dying out. He does use that trope in a lot of his zombie stories, his vampire stories as yeah. well. Um, and he's really good at making it just of kind of lulling. Like this is the reason. This is the first logical reason we did it. This is his rotten ruined stuff. Um, this is all the perfectly sound, reasonable, rational well, logic this, behind this horror. horror this yeah. horrible thing. This is the reason why they've done it. This is the reason why we've done it. This is a horrible thing. That person's an evil demagogue. This is awful. But everyone is everyone is engaged. 
Um, and the thing about Mabry is he writes pulp horror. <laughs> so you're reading this and it's fun and it's fun and it's fun and then you go, oh God, that's <laughs> awful. And then it's back to hitting zombies with shovels. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you're like, that's no, well done. That's, you know, if, you, if you're if going to make people think, then, you know, jam, 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 jam. Spiders, jam, jam, jam. Um, but unless you like spiders, in which case, I don't know, more jam, I suppose. Uh, Amazing. Producer uh, Al is doing the, the dance on blockbusters, uh, which uh, normally tells us that we're about to run out of our, our time. Which is fair enough. I think we've taken a big arc today. We've been on a long journey. I'm definitely a different person. <laughs> I, I never change. But that's because I'm, I've learned about myself. But, but that's because I am, in fact, a, a simulation of myself. Uh, shall we leave? Yes. <laughs> so, you have been listening to A Brave New Words. Uh, you can get in touch with us as... Uh, various things and the jingle you've just heard has told you um so i have been your host ed fortune and i have been one of the co-hosts del 